prayed. We're looking at the Good Samaritan parable today, and you can start opening up in your Bibles, Luke 10, and we're going to be reading verses 25 through 37. But I, I, I coupled this with last week's sermon. I wanted to do them back to back. Last week we talked about the prodigal son, the parable that everyone knows, and now we're doing the Good Samaritan, which, which actually may be more well known than the prodigal son. And, and all of us have heard this story a hundred times in our life. And even if you never grew up in church, uh, and you're just kind of like in the American culture, you've probably heard Good Samaritan, and you know what it means, right? There's Good Samaritan awards, there's Good Samaritan hospital, there's on the news, you might hear of the Good Samaritan who came along. We all understand this concept of it's someone that goes out of their way to love or, or protect, protect someone else. But oftentimes, just like the prodigal son last week, I think we get so familiar with the story and the obvious point that we miss the deeper point of what's really being said here. And so you see that parables have these layers, right? And the more you study them, the more you understand the depth of God's truth, the more you can pull out of them. And I think there's a deeper layer to this parable that we often miss. And that's what I want to talk about today. And before we can understand the true meaning and the depths of this parable, we have to go all the way back to where it started. And it started with a man asking Jesus a question. A question that's not directly addressed in this parable. But it's the most important question anyone could ever ask. So let's read that together. And so on one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, as I said, there's some layers to this parable. 
And to truly understand the Good Samaritan parable and what Jesus was teaching, you have to get down to the very beginning and the interaction between Jesus and this expert in the law. And what that really means is this, this is a lawyer, right? It's someone who didn't really study like civil law, not Roman law. He was studying God's law and he knew everything about it, in and out. And so this expert of the law came to Jesus to test him. And here we see the, the true character of this man before Jesus. And it's not a stretch to say that lawyers are good at arguing and debating. And this is no offense to any current or former lawyers here or friends or family of, of them, but, but lawyers are good at debating. And his, his heart was revealed in the first few words here, that he stood up to Jesus to test him. And he's asking Jesus the most important question anyone could ever ask. Essentially, how do I go to heaven? But he wasn't wanting the answer, right? He already had the answer in his mind. He was just testing if Jesus knew the answer, too. He's trying to trap him and discredit him. And this is where you see that Jesus approaches this expertly. And if you read through the Gospels, you know you should never pick an argument with Jesus because you will lose. And so Jesus says, well, Mr. Expert, what do you see written in the law? How do you read it? And, and the, the, he actually gave a very good answer here. He essentially gave Deuteronomy 6.5, which is known as the Shema. And it was the first answer that, or it was the first scripture that anyone ever memorized, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And also, he added on, Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's actually the same way that Jesus summed up all of God's law and what's required of you. Love God and love others. So he gave the correct answer. So then Jesus goes one step further and says, you've answered correctly. Now go do it. And essentially, you know what you're saying, but are you saying? Are you doing what you're saying? And he's holding up this mirror to the legal expert. Go do it. Do that perfectly and you will live forever. And so what we see now is that this, this lawyer, this expert, is feeling convicted, feeling guilty. And so he's trying to get off kind of on this technicality. So as the, the text says, he wanted to justify himself, meaning he's feeling guilty. And he throws out kind of the straw man argument here. Well, who, who technically is my neighbor. Did you notice something here? He, he skipped completely over the first part, which is love the Lord your God, because he knew he wasn't doing that. So now he gets into the neighbor thing, and not even about loving your neighbor, but technically, who is my neighbor? And this lawyer knew that, that he wasn't following that command, but if he could redefine and narrow who a neighbor was, then maybe he was. He was loving those whom loved him, who loved him. And this parable that's about to be shared by Jesus is demonstrating not just who a neighbor is, but the true depths of love and compassion, the, the lofty standards of God and, and the requirements of us and his law. And so he, he sets up this concept, right? 
that this man was going down a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is known as the Jericho Road. And just a little bit of cultural context here. This was not Route 66. This was a very dangerous and treacherous road. It was, it was full of, of sheer cliffs and, and narrow uh, road. There's, there is lots of elevation to go over. It's something you didn't do just on, on a day's walk. It's something that you knew was going to be dangerous before you went. And it was also a great place for robbers and thieves to hide because there's little dark corners and caves that they could jump out and attack people. So unsurprisingly, the man in this story was alone. He was jumped by these thieves, and they took everything from him. Stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Or what that meant is they left him for dead. That by himself, he was going to die. And so, we see these two characters come on the scene. The priest and the Levite. Now, any good cultural Jewish person of the day would say, hooray, the the heroes have come, and now it's going to be solved. The priests were very highly regarded. These were the ones who were uh, sacrificing on behalf of God's people. They were intervening for them between God and man. They, They knew the law. They lived good lives. They were prestigious. They're known as righteous people, people close to God. And the Levite was kind of like their assistant. And so how it worked is every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. If you're a Levite and you weren't a priest, you were, you're an assistant in the temple. So think of this as like a pastor and a worship leader. Now, I can make fun of Chris because he's not here today. But these are the people you would expect to help out. But what we see is that both of them went down the same road. They saw this man in need on the other side, and they actively went around him on this narrow road. This was not an accident by the priest and the Levite here. This was a calculated decision. They knew exactly what was going on, that if this man didn't get help, this half-dead man, he was going to die. And they were comfortable leaving him for dead. And we don't understand what excuses and justifications they made in their mind, but we could just about imagine, right? Just, just think, what kind of excuses would they have? Well, maybe it's the legal excuse of, of well, technically that's an unclean person. I'm a priest, right? I'm a Levite, and if I touch him, I'll be unclean, and now I won't be able to you know, do the sacrifices in the temple later today. And, and, you know, the, the law does say I need to love my neighbor, but who, who technically is my neighbor? I mean, I don't know that guy. Stranger to me. And they might get to the point where it's like, well, if God had a law that said you must help the half-dead person on the side of the road, then I would do it. But then again, the same excuses would be, well, what does half-dead mean? Because he looks kind of like 90% dead. And so there's many excuses you can make to justify yourself of not helping. Maybe it's just some personal excuse of like, I'm just in this hurry. I got to get where I'm going. And this just looks like a problem person. You know, if I get involved here, I'm I'm not getting out of this. Maybe it's just this, this lack of empathy of, you know what? He probably deserved it. 
did a dumb thing. He's traveling on the Jericho Road in the middle of the night or whatever by himself. Of course you're going to get mugged. So he deserves it. We don't know what excuses they made in their mind, but it's easy for us to assume them. Why? Because these are the same excuses we often make. We learn that we're not much different than the priest and the Levite in this story. They knew the law. They knew better. But they had the power of self-justification to say, I don't need to do that right now. And so the priest and the Levite in this parable represent this expert of the law who knew what was right. He knew what was wrong, but he created a justification for himself. So in a shocking twist here, the good guys are actually the bad guys. So you would assume now that this is the, the zero to hero moment where this unassuming, salt-of-the-earth Jewish man who never had uh, a chance in life gets to really show his true colors and help this, this, this person. No. Enter the Samaritan. The Samaritan. And just a little bit of context here. The Samaritan in this culture, was hated and despised. The Samaritans were good for nothing. And between the Jewish and the Samaritan people, there were decades, centuries, of long-running hatred for one another. And it started all the way back in, in about 700, when the Assyrians captured a bunch of Jews and took them out of their land. They left some back. And those Jewish people started to intermarry with some. And so the Samaritans were that lineage. They're kind of seen as like half-Jewish, half-breeds. And they're known as like unclean, unfit. And, and when the, the Jewish people came back from that, that captivity, they rebuilt the temple, and the, and the Samaritans wanted to help. You can read this in the book of Ezra. But they said No. And they, they left them out of that. And so the Samaritans built their own temple. And so now you have these two kind of neighboring temples and these two people who are always at odds with one another. And they both mutually hate one another. And that's where it's more shocking in this story that after the priest and the Levite, the tops of society wouldn't help that the Samaritan, the hated Samaritan comes along. And he shows love in a very tangible way. He came, he saw where this man was, and rather than actively avoiding him with a billion excuses, he took pity on him. And he loved with compassion. And what we see here is what what I kind of call the four C's of neighborly love. And that's the first part is he loved with compassion. Now the word pity, I think, is is lost on us in our culture. We look at pity often as a a negative thing. And you might say, well, just don't have pity on me, right? Right? But pity, really, just think of it as compassion. It's the same idea. And he, he saw this man in need, total stranger, the person he's supposed to hate, and he had pity on him. He took compassion on him. And compassion really is, is this emotional response. It's this, this aching or this longing. In fact, the, the ancient Greeks said that compassion was an emotion that lived in your stomach. They called it bowels of compassion. It's like this this aching for someone that that moves you into action. And so rather than being empathetic, he had compassion. And he showed that compassion 
by extending care. As you read on that, he just didn't feel bad for him, but he stopped everything. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine and then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn to take care of him. Now it's one thing to feel bad for someone. It's a, not, it's a whole other thing to act on that and to do something. And care is the tangible response to compassion. And when it says that he bandaged his wounds... It means that whatever he used came out of his own bag, so it's probably tomorrow's shirt. He's now wrapping this bloody man in. When he poured on oil and wine, the word here in the Greek for pour means to kind of douse it on him. He was very generous in this. And and when travelers uh, would, would go on a road like this at this time, they only took what was absolutely necessary for this trip. And so oil would be something he would cook with, wine would be something that he would drink So now he doesn't know if he's going to eat or drink after this. And what we see is as he's showing this tangible care, it's it's not done in a stingy way. He's, He's very generous with all of this, which means that he's loving at great personal cost. And we see through this that, that neighborly love is something that is, it's not a cheap love. It's not a convenient love. It's a sacrificial love. That in this story, he, he put this man on his own donkey. Now, the donkey had a purpose here, is to carry all of his luggage. So now he's got to carry all of his own luggage for the rest of the trip. There's this physical cost he's making. And it says that he stayed with him overnight. So now he, he's, giving up, he's giving up his time. And he gives this innkeeper two denarii, which a denarii was how much you made in a day. All right, so he's giving two days' wages right now, to take care of this stranger who he's never even spoken to at this point. He's sacrificing his money, his time, his comfort, his personal energy and efforts. And the point here is that this is not just some minimal care. He's giving with a sacrifice for this stranger. But it wasn't just spending the night with him and giving him everything, and going on and never seeing him again, is is loving with a commitment. And that's the extraordinary part of this parable to me, is after he did all of this, he said, I will return and reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. That could have been a week, it could have been a month, it could have been two months, but he was ready to return and continue taking care of this person, no matter what it went no matter what was, what was uh, expended here, if the, if the man needed more food or clothes or, or a visit from a physician, he said, I will cover the expense when I return. Compassion, care, cost, and commitment. What we're seeing here in this parable is neighborly love at its highest level. This Samaritan is so full of love that he had to stop whatever he's doing. And help this man who probably hated him and he was supposed to hate. And he did all he could do in this story. And I was wondering, you know, what, what did happen with the Samaritan? What did happen with this man who was helped? Well, the answer is nothing. Because they never existed. Okay, this is a parable. This is Jesus talking about this situation to, to put this in, in, in a story so you can understand tangibly what this means. 
And so this is the example of neighborly love that we're called to. This is what it means to love a neighbor. But there were two real people in all of this, which is where we go back to. Jesus and the lawyer. And as he wraps this up, in the final three verses, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And so Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So what we see as this concludes between Jesus and the lawyers, he, he, Jesus is, is answering two really big questions. One of them very directly, and one of them indirectly. And so we, we see the first question, it's kind of a two-part question, of who is my neighbor and what does it mean to love them? And through this parable, Jesus explains that you can't pick and choose who you love. It's easy to love those who love you. But Jesus talks about that. He says, don't just love those who love you. There's no reward in that. And that's the way the world already works, is love those who are lovable. But we're supposed to love all people, even those that we hate or are supposed to hate. We're not meant to define neighbor, but rather to be neighborly. We're to be the ones who can't pass by as someone else has a need. So who is your neighbor? Well, it's anyone around you who's in need. And the second part of that, what does it mean then to love your neighbor? Well, you should love them deeply. It's more than just a passing thought and a, ooh, I feel bad for them. Hope they'll be okay. Someone else will take care of them. But there's a compassion that, that then comes to a place of tangible care, which comes at a cost to you, and there's a commitment to see that through. Now, it's hard to even love your friends and your family members that way, right? But now we're called to love all people that way. You might be asking yourself, how do I possibly do that? Can I possibly do that? I mean, I, I want to, I, I hope I would, but could, could I really love that way every single day and every single moment without failure? Well, the answer is no. And that brings us back to the original question, which is really the deeper part of this parable. The question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think a lot of people read this parable through the centuries, and they think the takeaway is, if you love people really well, if you're a really good person, then you'll go to heaven. That's the takeaway. Be the good Samaritan. Do nice things, and God will reward you in your efforts with eternal life. But when Jesus told him, go and do likewise, this expert of the law, who knows it in and out, he knows the depths of the requirements. If he's any half of a lawyer, he knows that you need perfect obedience of the law in order to receive righteousness. And, and technically speaking, if any of us could live fully up to God's standards without fault, perfectly in our life, 
then there'd be no other help necessary. We could achieve righteousness in eternal life for ourselves. But the point here is that we can't. And this expert never wanted the answer to this question to begin with. And it's clear that he misunderstood the concept with his question because his question was flawed from the beginning. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you know the goodness of God and the gospel of his grace, the answer is God's inheritance cannot be earned. There's nothing we can do to inherit eternal life. And I always kind of found it puzzling here, because as we see the deeper meaning of this parable, is is that this, this depth of love is explained to this lawyer at a level where he must admit he can't do that. Right? And if his mind, if he really is wondering, what must I do to inherit eternal life, why didn't Jesus just tell him? Well, eternal life comes through faith. It comes through accepting the gift of grace. But I think he didn't answer correctly because he needed this expert of law to really think about this. Because if you would have said, salvation comes through faith, then this man who's got his mind made up in self-righteousness and self-justification would have said, okay, then I'm going to do faith really good. And I've determined that in order to be faithful, I, I have to go to church every Sunday. I have to give a certain amount every week. I have to lead three Bible studies. And he's going to make this whole framework for himself of what faith means. And it's just be another work for him. But I think the point of this parable is to understand who you are in it. And the way I see it is the good Samaritan is someone who lives love perfectly. Right? That's the example here. There's only been one person who has ever lived on this earth who has lived love perfectly. And that, we know, is Jesus. He is the great Good Samaritan. right? And he, he gave up everything as he saw the world in need and people dead in their sin. He loved at a great compassion and care and cost for all people. He's fully committed to us. Jesus is the only one who could truly be the good Samaritan in this parable and be considered righteous in the end. So that leaves two spots for us. You're either the priest or Levite, or you're the man who was robbed and left for dead. And I think that's the greatest point of this parable here is if you're trying to attain righteousness through your works and in all the ways that you believe you're good, and you're at the point of you say, boy, it's good to be so good. You're exhibiting this self-righteousness, this self-justification that we see never plays out in real life like the priest and the Levite. But to truly know your position before God is to know that you are the one that's captive to sin, That you're the one left in the ditch. That everything is taken from you and you are left for dead until you can receive help from the kind stranger. And as I was preparing this this week, I, I came across kind of a neat story from a seminary instructor who who loves to teach on this parable, who comes to the same conclusion as I just said. 
that really the true point is that we are the one who is mugged and left for dead. But he, he teaches here in America, and you know this culture that we live in is one where we feel like we, we kind of have control over everything. Everything in life, right? If you, if you want something, you just set your mind for to it, and, and you work for it, and you achieve it, right? There's nothing getting in the way of what you don't have and what you want except your effort. And so we, we, we view our lives through this lens of control, right? So he'll ask his students in America, who do you identify with this in, in this parable? And nearly 100% of the time, they're going to say either the priest or the Levite or the Good Samaritan. But he'll do the same thing in Africa. And students who, who come from, from nothing, who are, who are working to minister and, and give everything they have to the kingdom of God, and nearly 100% of the time, they'll answer the one I identify with is the man who has nothing and must accept help from a stranger even if I don't like them or they shouldn't like me. That when you find yourself in a place of desperation, you have no choice but to accept help. I think that's the reality for us, friends. That's the big takeaway here. Is that we need to know that there's nothing we can do to earn our righteousness in heaven. But we're the ones left for dead. And Jesus has come by to love us with true love and compassion. That's the takeaway. What I don't want you to hear today, though, is I'm never going to love good enough, so why even try? Right? That's not the takeaway here. The takeaway is that, is that you don't love others for the reward. Loving others is the reward. And if you want to know like, what God's will is for your life, and a lot of us, any, any honest and earnest Christian is going to be seeking that. What's God's will for my life? Right? And it usually comes down to, you know, what sh- where should I work? I've got company A and I've got company B. God, what's your will for my life? You know, who should I marry? How many kids should we have? What house should we live in? We view God's will like, and those kinds of things, like the choices we make. But if you want to know God's will for your life, then love like the Good Samaritan. Because you could work at company A, B, C, or D, but if you're not loving like the Good Samaritan did, then you're not living in God's will. And when you live in God's will, that is the reward. So I don't want you to walk away from here saying, doesn't matter how loving I am. No, God is calling us to that. It's his design for us in this, this world. And there's a reward in living in his will. But you need to know that the inheritance of eternal life, the rewards of heaven, is not contingent upon how well we love and our works before him. It's about being open to God's mercy. It's to know that that we have nothing before God, but he's loved us deeply. And before we can express this profound love for others, we we need to accept that. And Jesus is offering that for you right now. No matter where you're at, no matter how empty you feel, how beaten and bruised you are by life, Jesus is there offering to love you with true love and compassion. And all you need to do is accept that help and take his hand. Let's close today in prayer.
Well, God, we thank you for the, the depths of your love and your mercy and your grace, your great compassion for us. And God, we know that you don't love us because we're lovable. You love us because you are love. It's just who you are. And we'll never be able to love like you, though we strive for it. But God, I pray we truly understand our condition before you, that that even our best works are like filthy rags before you. God, that we're not here to to justify ourselves. We're not here to, to set our own parameters of what is good or what is good enough. But God, we know that you alone are good. You alone are worthy and loving. And you're willing to help every single one of us. So I, I pray for anyone who's been limping along in life, who's been feeling beaten and robbed by sin, that, that they know that there's, there's consequence to that. And if they're in that place right now where they're trying to work themselves out of it and trying to just be good enough or nice enough or loving enough to earn your favor, God, that they would stop and that they would know that the only way to inherit eternal life, the only way towards righteousness is to accept the help and the love that you've given us. It's a free gift of grace. They just admit before you that they have sinned, that they've fallen short, and believe that you have done all the work necessary, that you died on the cross, that you paid the penalty for our sins, you rose from the grave, you conquered sin, and now you offer us eternal life that we just confess in you that you alone are Lord and God. So God, I, I do pray now as, as we go from here that, that we don't walk away from this parable teaching thinking, boy, I'll just never be good enough. But thinking, I'm never going to be good enough. But you are. And that's enough for me. That we'd accept that. And know, God, that you are loving and you are committed to us to the very end. That, that you will never leave us or forsake us. That the good work that you start in us, you will continue and you will complete until the day of Christ Jesus. So God, may we be a people that are not proud, that are not self-righteous, but a, a people that is humble, a people that is hungry for you. God, that we come before you with empty but open hands, ready to receive whatever you have for us. So God, I pray that all in your name and for your glory. Amen.